0: This episode is sponsored by Krim. Krim skillfully designs and manufactures professional coffee equipment like their Onyx manual espresso machines, Coffee Queen filter brewers, and Unity, their fully automatic coffee makers. These sleek, versatile, and reliable machines come with proactive service plans to ensure a differentiated and seamless coffee experience for coffee professionals and enthusiasts. Find out more at crim.coffee. To the Coffee Podcast. This is the Coffee Science Series Brewing Better with Chemistry. In this episode, we talk about what discoveries have been made at the Coffee Center at UC Davis and what might be next. We also dive a little deeper into chemistry topics regarding brewing coffee and what has thus far been discovered. I hope you walk away like I have from this conversation with brew experiments you can perform at home. Also, I'd like you to have some new tips that might improve how you brew your coffee at home. Bill Ristenpart is the founding director of the Coffee Center at UC Davis in California. His background is in chemical engineering, which he defines as, quote, a way of using science to convert raw materials into a more desired form, end quote. In the context of coffee, he says,
1: That's exactly what every coffee industry professional around the world is doing. They're taking a raw material, you know, some coffee cherries, and then turning it into, at the end of the day, a you know, delicious beverage. And there's a lot of really complicated chemistry and physics and microbiology and a whole bunch of other scientific disciplines that go into that process.
0: Bill founded the Coffee Center, and it all started with a course using coffee to teach concepts about chemistry, kind of like how we talk about coffee on the podcast. But it's also a vehicle for all kinds of other conversations.
1: When I first got into coffee, kind of academically, around 2012-2013, I did, had no idea that I'd be doing coffee research someday. I was interested in, in coffee just from a pedagogical Point of view. I wanted to use coffee as a way of illustrating, of teaching core scientific mm. uh, engineering principles to students. There's lots of students who go through the university and never in their wildest dreams would they ever imagine that they would take a chemical engineering course, right? Like Not many students would go yeah. sign up for introduction to chemical engineering. But if you call it the design of coffee, an introduction to engineering. <laughs> then that really piques people's curiosity and then you can start talking about yeah, some of these really yeah. complicated things. And so I, I founded the coffee center after the after the class blew up in popularity and we started making contacts with uh, people in the coffee industry and especially coffee association. And it became clear to us that there was a tremendous amount of interest in not just teaching, but also in research.
0: What What about your pers- So your personal interest with coffee? Because I know our listeners like to hear a little bit about w- when did you start drinking coffee or, or what is it about coffee outside of your experience at UC Davis and using it as that sort of teaching tool?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I know coffee definitely got me through graduate school. Uh, without that, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't have made it. Before about 2010 or so, I was a very utilitarian coffee drinker. I would just drink whatever was caffeinated. Um, you know, I, I grew up... Uh, my parents drank a lot of uh, instant coffee and things like that. So I didn't really know about specialty coffee. My uh, kind of awakening, I guess, is I was on a road trip with my family up to Vancouver uh, in Canada, in British Columbia. And we stopped at a kind of a gourmet donut place uh, that my family was very excited about. And they had some uh, specialty coffee in there. And I I didn't know what it was at the time. And I had some black coffee. And when I tasted it, I was like, why why did they adulterate this with oranges? There's like orange peel flavor This is," And I I was kind of outraged. And the the barista was very uh, kind and patient said, no, no, that's that's there naturally. It's it's a, the flavor that comes out. And I, I can't remember the details of the coffee, but like that was the, my first introduction to the idea that like you could actually have some pretty exotic mm-hmm. flavors in coffee. And after that, I became a bit yeah. more obsessed about it. And then a couple of years later, I had an opportunity to start teaching the class and then I really got into it.
0: You have a pretty fun angle on this uh, coffee thing. So, you know, in a world where anyone can point to say, like a white paper or, you know, there's a lot of access to information on the internet. And maybe they say something like, aha, I understand the mystery or or, I found the answer. What sets the UC Davis Coffee Center apart from other research happening in coffee? So that's a great question. And
1: and I should give uh, some more perspective on what the coffee center is. And so it's not just me. And, uh, and a few students there's actually about 40 faculty on campus uh, in a variety of different disciplines I'm in chemical engineering so I think about the dynamics of extraction and roasting in detail but I have, mm-hmm. I have colleagues who do sensory and consumer science colleagues who do social science colleagues who do agronomy and plant science plant pathology even colleagues in the law school and the business school you know so what brings all of those together and to answer your question is that uh, you know we approach things from kind of a academic rigorous point of view and so in my own discipline in science you know we we aren't convinced by random opinions that we read about on the website somewhere. We need hard data to corroborate things. And so that's one thing Mm -hmm. that I've been really excited about recently in our our research focused on the coffee tasters flavor wheel and the coffee brewing control chart. So we're bringing rigorous hard data to really answer the question, how does coffee taste as a consequence of how you brew it?
0: So you've already talked, you just brought it up, the coffee brew control chart. Mm -hmm. What is it? Well, well, let's talk about a little bit about what it is. I know some of my listeners are familiar because we've, we've brushed on this before. But what is it, and why is it so important to your research?
1: So the coffee brewing control chart, it's a graph, it's a chart that was originally developed by a fellow named Ernest Lockhart in the 1950s. He was a uh, chemist and food scientist and a director of something called the Coffee Brewing Institute. So the, the brewing control chart, the goal is to relate how you brew the coffee, to what it tastes like. And so if, if your listeners Google it, they'll, they'll find the, the classic form of it where on the vertical axis is how strong your coffee is. So that's the total dissolved solids. So literally how much stuff is dissolved into your cup of water, right? That's the vertical axis. And the horizontal axis is the extraction yield or percent extraction. And what that refers to is how much of the soluble material in the coffee grounds did you rip out of the solid phase and put into the liquid phase? Those two quantities are independent. So you can have three different cups of coffee that all have exactly the same strength, the same TDS, but they'll taste wildly different because they had different extraction yields. And so those two quantities, the extraction yield and the brew strength, are linked by the brew ratio. And so that's traditionally how coffee brewers have thought about the brewing control chart. They modify their brew ratio and some of the other parameters to get a desired brew profile. And the classic target brew is in this range of 1.15 to 1.35% TDS and 18 to 22% extraction. So right in the center of the chart. Mm -hmm. And so that's the classic uh, version uh, that's been around since the 1950s.
0: And it sounds like that version has not necessarily aged well with the research. Is that well, no, I think
1: the, um, Locker had a, you know a very brilliant insight. So before then, there was everybody was just kind of shooting in the dark. But what he pointed mm-hmm. out was that if you had you know high extraction yields, that would be uh, associated with pretty bitter beverages. Whereas if you had low extraction yields, it would be uh, what they refer to as underdeveloped, uh, which is kind of like grassy mm-hmm. or sour uh, or, or nutty notes.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And
1: so in terms of aging, well, I mean like those insights are not incorrect. But if you compare the classic coffee brewing control chart to the modern coffee taster's flavor wheel you'll see a huge mismatch because on the on the control chart you basically have just two sensory notes either underdeveloped or bitter but if you mm-hmm. look at the coffee taster's flavor wheel you'll see there's what is it there's like 104 or so different attributes or flavors that can be detected mm-hmm. in coffee like for example that orange or citrusy note that i was so shocked by a decade ago and so where, where is that like so if you want to highlight the citrusy flavor in a specialty coffee, how do you brew it? So th- that's the information that's uh, been missing. And that's that's in terms of what uh, sensory scientists refer to as the sensory descriptive attributes. And so, you know, what does it taste like? The, the thing that's perhaps easier to criticize is the pronounced emphasis on the kind of ideal range. So in terms of consumer preferences, the classic brewing control chart is kind of one size fits all. It says there's this one ideal range yeah. right here, right mm-hmm. here in the middle. And, you know, you can just look around any coffee shop and you see like, wait a second, you know different people like different things. How can there be a one size fits all approach? And so that's something else we've been doing. We've been doing a tremendous amount of uh, consumer testing, at least of our, our kind of Northern California demographic here. And we've been finding that preferences for black coffee are tremendously much more diverse than the classic chart would suggest. And so we ha- we have a paper, just to elaborate on that, we have a paper in, in peer review right now uh, where we've identified kind of two major clusters or cohorts of consumers, one, one we call the sweet lover and they actually prefer much lower strength and lower extraction coffees. So kind of in that bottom left corner of the classic brewing control chart, they strongly disliked the stronger brews. And the other cohort, we call them, they're much more complicated. We call them the extremophiles. They responded very favorably to basically the opposite. They preferred either really strong, kind of sour brews up in the top left corner, or really strong and bitter brews over on the far right side of the chart. And what's really notable about our research is that neither group preferred the coffees that were brewed right in the classic ideal zone, first promulgated by Lockhart. So it really Mm. just goes to show that like, yeah, I mean, like once you start getting rigorous data, you know, consumer data, the picture is much more complicated than was previously thought.
0: Yeah, and that, that leaves a lot of room, I think, for anybody who's in a position brewing coffee for a consumer to get creative or to get some feedback loops and, you know, figure out like, what do my customers want? Where maybe do they fit? That's some really important information. I think even as a, say a coffee shop owner or something, especially during this time where COVID COVID's become quite a variable. And so knowing those things and understanding those things about your customers are going to help you to, to make good decisions to, you know, generate some revenue. I'd imagine. No,
1: absolutely. So, I mean, like baristas are extremely yeah. skilled, but uh, in some sense, there's a lot of trial and error. You know, how do you maximize the blueberry notes, for example, in a, mm-hmm. a Chef? Our goal is to have, you know, a chart that really provides some guidance, like how do we maximize desired sensory attributes? And so hmm. once you know how you can make it, then you can also use some of the consumer information we're putting to have a little insight on like what types of consumers might like the different flavor profiles that you put together.
0: Sounds really fun. So, we're going to jump into some I think some technical talk here, get some definitions under our belt, and maybe get a little bit of understanding of some technical bits before we dive into some more uh of a conversation about uh discovery research and things like that. And my first question is what is the chemical life cycle for a seed of coffee from plant to brew?
1: Sure. So, I mean that I mean that that's an extremely broad Question. I mean, so green coffee yeah. seeds have about 400 different chemical species present. And then when you roast, the number goes balloons upwards. So there's more than a thousand different uh. molecules that contribute. Uh, to the flavor and the aroma of coffee? it's That's kind of a very broad question. One of my colleagues in the Perfect. coffee center, yeah. from not a chemical perspective, from but from just kind of a mass perspective, uh, my colleague is in the Department of Biological and Agricultural Engineering at UC Davis, uh, Erwin Donis Gonzalez. His expertise is in post-harvest processing. And so I've been collaborating with him. We've okay. been doing yeah. kind of a mass flow analysis from harvest to cup of coffee, You know, focus, cool. focusing on the wet process and uh, method-prevalent uh, you know, Central and uh, Latin America. One really fascinating thing about coffee, compared to many other academic disciplines, is that things that were studied like decades ago for other uh, other commodities, other products. You know, for example, wine uh, just have mm-hmm. have not happened to the same extent in coffee. And so there's just a huge kind of void in the academic literature. That's one of the goals of the Coffee Center is to fill <laughs> fill those voids.
0: That's been a major theme in our discussion over the production of this series is that gap. That you know, I've heard some people even call it the coffee is like an orphaned. Uh, Agricultural no, that,
1: products. That's 100% true. 100% true. I mean, like UC Davis, I think, is a great example of this. Um, we have a department, a world class department of viticulture and enology, and that's the growing of grapes and the making of wine. And that department mm. actually dates back to the founding of the University of California back in the 1880s. It was actually written into the state constitution that when the University of California is founded, it'll have, um, among other things, you know, a faculty focus on that. My colleagues in that department like to joke that it would be unconstitutional to shut down their department. But <laughs> there, there was no such department for coffee. Uh, and the, the simple reason right. is that. Even back in the 1880s, you know, Napa Valley and the wine industry had enough political uh, power to, you know, demand that, uh, whereas coffee mm-hmm. was not grown here to any extent in the United States. And so that's why academically, you know, that that disparity, like, just got kind of baked in, at least in the United States, and never was really yeah. rectified.
0: What is titrate? I guess it's tight. Thai- Titratable uh, acidity? Am I saying that right? Uh,
1: you, yeah, you are. Uh, titratable acidity. Okay, it's, okay. So, titratable acidity uh, is a measure of how acidic something is. And so, for your listeners who don't know, a titration is where you figure out how much acid is present by slowly adding a base to neutralize it. Um, and then you can measure how much acid is there basically by f- keeping track of how much base you have to add to neutralize it. People are familiar with pH, or they have a sense of like what a pH scale is. Titratable acidity, in contrast to pH, measures basically all the acids present. So pH measures strong acids, whereas titratable acidity measures weak acids as well. And the thing about coffee and many other food products like wine and things like that, your tongue doesn't respond to pH, it responds to titratable acidity. Your tongue is adept, is good at sensing weak acids, not to strong acids as well. And so we've been doing uh, research trying to correlate perceived sourness with titratable acidity present in brewed coffee.
0: Cool, yeah that that's a that's a fun one. Um, I think to dive more into, but for now we'll leave it there. <laughs> we'll we'll move on to we to we, some... we have a
1: whole seminar just on the will acidity. <laughs> uh, yeah, question. right, yeah. It,
0: and that's available to the public, right? Something we can link to. I think so.
1: Um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, like my students gave a bunch of SCA Expo talks, and I I, mm-hmm. I, I believe those right. are available online.
0: What or, or how should we as as I mean, I am sure some of us are are chemists of some kind, but I think the majority of us don't have or don't live in that world. So what is an organic acid versus say a non-organic acid?
1: Sure. So organic to a lot of consumers means, you know, you go to the grocery store, you see organic produce there. That means that the vegetables or fruits or whatever were grown without pesticides. Okay. Um, and so that's very different mm-hmm. from the way that a chemist uses the phrase organic. Organic to a chemist just means that the molecules contain carbon. And so, the discipline of organic chemistry is really the discipline of how carbon atoms link up with other atoms to form molecules like caffeine or sucrose or, you know, uh, referral alcohol or a thousand other molecules that are present in coffee, most of which are organic.
0: So, uh, for myself to reiterate, it's sort of the idea of the relationships between carbon molecules.
1: Yeah, that's probably the, the most succinct way of saying what organic chemistry is. It, okay. Yeah, inorganic okay. chemistry is like, you know, silicon uh, and other, you know, things that don't contain carbon.
0: Okay, but, but okay. Pe-
1: people are carbonic, uh, people are organic <laughs> molecules basically strung <stored laughs> together. Uh, and coffee is also okay. mostly organic molecules suspended in water.
0: Very cool. My next question, it's, I guess, similar. What compounds in coffee give it varying sensory experiences? um i know like umami sure so that's
1: that's a really complicated question um and so when you're looking to identify you know for example, the citrusy note that I uh, mm-hmm. mentioned earlier—you know—what causes that? It's not like if you remember Star Trek, where Mister Spock would like wave his tricorder over something and then start telling you that there are some weird chemicals present. Uh, to you know, to to, fi- <laughs> okay. to figure out what what molecules are present uh, is really complicated. You have to use something called mass spectrometry, okay, and so yeah. and so it's it's a very uh, laborious. You know, you basically need a PhD caliber student to you know run the mass spec equipment, and what that does at the end of the day it tells you what molecules are present in the brew. Then you have to couple that. That information with what it actually tastes like, and so you have to imagine that you're you're faced with this list of a thousand different chemicals, and then you're trying to say, oh, this one had a more citrusy note, or at least that's what I perceived. Which of those thousand molecules was more? Oh, so it's yeah. it's not it's not that's why there's a whole discipline of people doing food chemistry and and, and food sensory mm-hmm. trying to identify some uh, molecules are very easy to identify, like so citrus, um, a lot of the citrusy flavor that you associate with like lemon peels. There's a molecule, mm-hmm. an, an organic molecule called limonene, uh, which is okay. which is responsible for that. Limonene is also present in coffee. And so there's a good chance that uh, much of the citrus, you know, might be correlated with a higher concentration of limonene. Okay. But even in lemons and oranges and things like that, it's not just that one molecule that does that, right? And so there's, it's yeah. really complicated to figure out from a kind of a fundamental chemical perspective perspective. Which molecules are responsible for which flavor profiles in a beverage that's as complicated as coffee?
0: yeah, i I love the complicated nature of it because it's so easy to take a sip of something like coffee and enjoy it and and just to think like, oh yeah, there's just a few things happening, but there's there's a whole world of things happening chem, uh, happening chemically right
1: absolutely I, I love to tease my wine colleagues, you know the, the faculty over there because they know how complicated wine is. Um, you know there's different uh-huh. like tartaric acid and uh, different uh, molecules that. Affect the flavor of wine, and they love to talk about how that is linked to the terroir. And then I'll stand up and say, "Actually, coffee is more complicated than wine." And they kind of like spit, oh, they, they spit their coffee, they spit job. their coffee out, and get all outraged. But uh, it's—I mean—I think you can arguably make a good case that coffee is a much more complicated beverage than wine, hmm. both both chemically and also in terms of its production. You know, the, the wine folks really, they know how hard it is to make wine. You have to not only grow the grapes, mm-hmm. uh, but then you have to do the fermentation and then, you know, do the um, all, all the steps that go into that afterwards. Coffee actually has what a chemical engineer refers to as unit operations. Coffee actually goes through more unit operations. Uh, many of them are actually done at origin, so they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. And then, you know, here you can uh, get the impression like, oh, you know, coffee's easy. All you do is pour hot water over it. Um, yeah. And that's kind of like saying... Oh wine is easy all you have to do is open a bottle you know so it's it's not uh, someday I'd love to write an article <laughs> called coffee is more difficult than wine
0: yes yeah. oh man yeah. yeah i could see that blowing up i definitely would would pass that around yeah i love the the complexity there and and the idea that there's all this mapping that has to happen i guess in the research there's it's not just as simple as looking at a molecule or a compound It goes beyond that into the sensory realm to see what is being perceived and what's present there's there's all this stuff going on yeah
1: I've, I've had a great time I, I collaborate closely with Professor Jean-Xavier Guinard in the Department of Food Science he's a sensory expert um, and so I've learned to, I'm cool. a chemical engineer I've learned a ton from him and what I've learned is that like nice. in some sense a lot of the classic things we study in chemical engineering are kind of easy compared to trying to understand what people like people are way more complicated and so <laughs> this, even a simple yeah. question like which which of these coffees if you brew it differently tastes best it's got mm-hmm. a really complicated answer with different cohorts you know some people like this some people like that so it's uh, yeah. it gets really challenging
0: well well, before we jump into some of the discovery conversation about the research, what is transport phenomena, and it's somehow related to mass transfer, I guess. What what is all
1: this? Sure, yeah. Um, so, transport phenomena is the name that you know scientists have given to basically the, the idea of you know how do molecules move around from one place to another. But it's not just molecules; it can also be fluids, or it can be energy like heat. It's basically, you know, how how do things move around? It, it is a little confusing. When I when I told my parents I was studying transport for grad school, um, they said like, "What is that? Is it like bus schedules? Like, what what do you, what do you mean by that?" Like, <laughs> um, and no, it's it, for example, coffee is a beautiful example of lots of different uh, manifestations of transport phenomena. The the easiest one to visualize is coffee brewing. Um, and so there, mm-hmm. the transport question is, well, you have all these yummy molecules in the solid phase. How do you get them into the liquid phase? And and one answer is like, oh, you just pour water over it. You know, that's fine if it's you just want to have some brown. liquid. But if you want to really control yeah. the flavor profile, then you have to really think carefully about how the different parameters affect the transport, affect the mass transfer to get a desired mm. target uh, brew. And that's why our research about the coffee nice. brew control chart is so exciting is because like how you pour the water over it, in other words, how long you brew it for, what grind size you use the, um, in, in terms of uh, affecting the extraction yield and the brew strength has a huge impact on what it tastes like. And so that, that's what transport uh, refers to. I think uh, actually one interesting anecdote is you know for our consumer testing we had uh, yeah. more than 100 different people come in over three different weekends and taste you know almost 30 coffees and they tasted them all blind they didn't know what they were tasting and naturally at the end they're very curious like so what coffees were we tasting and we said oh actually it was the same coffee the whole time just just brewed differently and, oh, and yeah. it blew their minds they were like what we thought we we're tasting like all these different exotic coffees and they tasted so differently mm. just by virtue of the fact of how we brewed it yeah and effectively what we were doing there it was we were just changing the mass transfer.
0: This kind of information from somebody who likes to control their brew at home can be either overwhelming or really exciting, right? The idea that you can almost like take any coffee and treat it differently to get the best results and even that best word being best to you, obviously. So, no, ab- okay.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so I went camping uh, last week with my family. Uh, I was able to get out <laughs> for the first time in several months. Yeah, um, and yep. it was just experimenting with the French press doing very, very long brews and very short brews. And it's just amazing like how differently it can taste. Same coffee, same water temperature, same grind size, and everything. Mm-hmm. Just uh, minor differences in brew time and uh, full press. Full immersion French press method really made a difference.
0: Nice. Very fun. Well, I want to dive a little bit into... The discovery piece of the research that you've been a part of over there at UC Davis, in your opinion, would have been some of the most surprising discoveries you've observed? During your time there,
1: so I think one thing that we're very excited about right now is that we repeated the coffee brewing control chart experiments, which is it's very laborious because you have to brew it up to different brew strengths and different extraction yields um, over the entire chart, right? Yeah. And we repeated it all at different temperatures. And so some of your uh, listeners might be familiar with the the gold or gold cup brewing standard uh, put out by the SCA. Mm-hmm. You know, some coffee brewers that are more expensive typically have. More control over the temperature of the water that we're putting in there. And so we, we're very curious about this, and so we did a bunch of tests where we systematically varied the brew temperature from about 87 degrees Celsius up to about 93 degrees Celsius. What we did was we did brews where we fixed the brew strength and we fixed the extraction yield, but varied the brew temperature that was used to get there. So you know if we used, oh, if we, okay. if we used a lower brew temperature, then we'd just brew it slightly longer. So that we would get to the target brew strength, and that way we could do mm-hmm. a head-to-head comparison of coffees that were brewed at different temperatures. But at the end of the day, when they were actually tasted by our expert panel, had the same TDS, you know, the same total dissolved solids, the same brew strength, and the same extraction. We did all that work because we thought, you know, that it would make a big difference. Um, and basically, what we found, and we have a paper in review right now at Scientific uh, Reports, showing that, like statistically speaking, there was no difference at all.
0: Oh my gosh! So that's. That's super meaningful, right? Because if you can save time... You can, you can like I would imagine that's a major. There's there's there. a bunch
1: bunch of different uh, uh, implications, and
0: so and I just want to yeah.
1: be really clear. It's like we're not saying that temperature doesn't matter. Clearly, the temperature matters. Like if you brew with hotter water, the mass transfer is faster; it'll brew more quickly. But what I'm talking about is if you control the brew time such that you use you use different temperatures, but get to the same endpoint, get to the same brew strength, and the same extraction yield. What temperature water you used to get there didn't matter. Uh, both our expert panel they they couldn't really discern a mm-hmm. difference. Our consumer panel, no significant difference in what people liked either. And so there's basically, it tasted the same effectively. And so the impl- oh. so the implications of that, uh, there's a bunch. I mean, so yes, you could use hot water, water and brew it more quickly, or you could use uh, lower temperature water, save energy, right? And uh, just let it brew mm-hmm. a little bit longer and get to the same
0: okay. point. Okay. Right? Yeah.
1: And so it also suggests that the kind of gold cup brewer standard right now might be a little bit ill-posed because right now, if a brewer you know, doesn't get to a hot enough temperature quickly enough, then it fails. It doesn't pass, um, certif- oh, I it does see. pass okay. certification. Whereas what mm-hmm. our results are showing is like, well, actually what, a, you know, a high quality brewer should have, it shouldn't have to, you know, hit certain target specs in terms of like how quickly it gets to a very narrow temperature range um, and then holds mm-hmm. it the whole time. It should have much more, in my opinion, have much more control over the flow rate and the mm. what, we, what we call the water pulsing duty cycle. Okay. And so despite- By changing how often you add the water and how quickly you can change the brew time, even using lower temperature water, right? And then you can, you know, aim for a target brew strength.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. I know even since you and I talked first, I started to implement a lot more agitation in my brew Mm -hmm. and uh, at home and i have had fantastic re- results with that actually lowering the temperature more agitation like the combination but yeah I'm no sure. i
1: actually abs- absolutely i mean like the again the transport the mass transfer is accelerated by agitation by stirring uh, because you have a what mm-hmm. scientists referred to as a convective contribution to the the flux, and that's just a fancy way of saying that moving the <laughs> so mo- moving the <laughs> moving the liquid around helps maximize the concentration gradients, and therefore maximize mm-hmm. the diffusive flux out of the coffee grounds. And so, there's actually there is kind of a you know there's a huge sustainability uh, implication there. Too, because uh, you know, going back to your question about the the whole kind of life cycle of coffee, uh, people have done researchers have done work trying to figure out what's the energy costs of making coffee. Um, mm-hmm. And if you do kind of an energy balance over the whole thing, you know, from planting the coffee trees to harvesting and you know the gasoline to move the tractors around, like the shipping costs, the roasting, you know, there's a lot of steps that require a bunch of energy. But at the end of the day, when you're making a cup of coffee in a cafe, it's mm-hmm. almost half half of the total energy. In wow, that cup of coffee man, is just from is just, crazy. just from heating the water. Anything you can do, if you can like minimize the amount of energy used for heating the water in that final step, that actually mm-hmm. decreases the total energy consumption for the entire coffee supply chain by like a significant amount.
0: Significant chunk. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's huge. You know, we talked a little bit about some of your most fascinating observations. And I wanted to jump a little bit into some topics about pardon me for a second perceived sourness, titratable acids correlating to TDS, extraction yield versus TDS, these sorts of things. Can you give us a little bit of context to that?
1: Sure. So we, we have a paper in preparation right now, um, linking titratable acidity to total dissolved solids. When I first started getting into coffee, you know, just Looking around on the web, there was a lot of discussion about how acids present in coffee are more soluble, so they come out into solution more quickly. And so based on that, I kind of anticipated that if you do a bunch of brews and then measure the titrable acidity versus the brew strength, that it would basically be a nonlinear relationship. But what we're finding is at least overall the range of uh, brew strengths, what we're finding is that the titrable acidity present in coffee always strongly linearly correlated with the TDS, All the, even at very, very high extraction yields and even at very, very high brew strings. And what's even more fascinating is that the temperature water that you use to brew that only affects it very weakly. So the total dissolved solids is a really, really good predictor of the titratable acidity.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So as a barista or somebody brewing at home, what should I take out of that information?
1: If you just take a step back and look at the totality of the research that's coming out of the coffee center in the past couple of years, what is really showing mm-hmm. is uh, how paramount, how important uh, the total dissolved solids is. The the TDS by far is the best predictor of d- the different sensory attributes that are present in the coffee brew uh, control chart that we're making. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, like I just mentioned, it's a strong predictor for the touchable acidity, and which is strongly linked to the perceived sourness. Mm-hmm. It's also that's the. Parameter that people respond to by far the most for the consumer testing. So I I think kind of a key take-home message I think is that if you're not kind of measuring your TDS now as a matter of course, uh, if you're you know professional barista somewhere, Mm -hmm. then you may want to consider doing that soon because that's it's a really like if you use a a digital refractometer, it's like a five-second measurement. You know, just one little drop on mm-hmm. the thing. Um, it doesn't take uh, a ton of training. And it can provide a lot of insight. I mean, if uh, your customers are saying, oh, it's too sour and whatnot, and you go back and measure your TDS like it's uh-huh. off the charts compared to before, then you know something went wrong somewhere, right? Yeah. And so that's, I think, so a useful feedback tool.
0: Especially during this time, my question there would be, you know, VST devices, or I'm sorry, I, I mentioned VST, but really, I mean, TDS devices can be super expensive, Mm -hmm. And is there any like in between, is there anything affordable for coffee shop owners or whoever who, you know, they don't have that kind of budget?
1: Yeah, you just mentioned one brand. uh, But the thing about digital refractometry is that you don't need to use any particular brand. Um, So any type of uh, refractometer will work as long as you have a proper calibration uh, scheme. So some people actually use Bricks meters. Are you familiar with bricks?
0: Okay, I, I just know it from wine. It's it's yep. been brought up, but I'm you know you gotta, I've never uh, dealt uh, with bricks de- myself. degrees
1: bricks. That's just a, a technical name for how much sugar is present in water. So one de- mm-hmm. one degree bricks is one percent of a mass of sugar in water. I'm actually I'm writing up a uh, a new coffee brewing handbook, and one of the chapters is going to be or is I finished it is on uh, digital refractometry, and it, like basically describes how that works and how you can oh, and how you can you know use. Less expensive options and how to you know make your own calibration curve. For example, I think it doesn't have to be you know eight hundred nine hundred dollars. You can get a much cheaper bricks meter. You know, especially if you're in a cafe environment, I think it's a good investment um, because it helps mm-hmm. provide some insight on how your coffee might be drifting uh, versus time or how different flavor profiles are correlated with a TDS. And the thing about once once you know the TDS, you also know it, you can calculate what your extraction yield was as well. So it also gives you important insight on how effectively you're using the coffee and where you are in terms of the overall coffee brew control chart. So it's gotcha. it's, a, it's a really good investment for any cafe that is serious about serving specialty coffee.
0: So question for you, just out of application, if you're using some kind of mineral water, it's already going to have d- dissolved solids in there, right? The Correct. idea is... Yeah. So you, you would just take the difference between the measurement of the water and the measurement of the brew? Is that the idea? You, uh,
1: Yes, you can. But unless you're using like ocean water or something, um, the difference between a brewed cup of coffee and water is, is huge. It's going to be in the noise, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, so like typical, like hard tap water is like 500 ppm, uh, mm-hmm. whereas a cup of coffee is like 13,000 ppm.
0: Oh, okay. Right? I see.
1: And so it's, it you know, that what is it? It's like a 0.05 uh, percent difference or so, and so normally what people recommend is you calibrate your or zero your refractometer with uh, distilled water, which has you know is close mm-hmm. to zero uh, ppm. Uh, but then you should I'd recommend doing calibrations with uh, whatever water you're using for the brew, and then it,
0: oh yeah. okay yeah well that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then, well, cool. I'm looking forward to that. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say,
1: yeah. Like, if you really want to get into it, then you can make you can make an actual calibration curve with some other type of refractometer that's not designed specifically for coffee. But if you just you can just make a bunch of uh, solutions with instant coffee because the nice thing about instant coffee is that it dissolves 100 percent of it dissolves, and so you can yeah you can for example oh, add, you can add okay. you can add one gram of instant coffee to 99 grams of water, and you if, if you have a scale that allows that precision. Now you have a one percent TDS. Coffee solution. And then you can go and see what your refractometer, what does that measure for that? You do that a few times for one gram or 1.5 grams (laughs) or two grams. Now you have a calibration curve and you're good to go using whatever, whatever Bix meter or refractometer that you have.
0: Nice. Well, you know, I'm going to ask you at the end about some experiments we can do at home, but we've already, we're already tackling some that sound really fun. So I'm excited we got into that already. Um, We've talked about mass transfer and you mentioned to me before something about mass transfer coefficient. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious what, what does this represent and what does it have to do with your research
1: so we have to get a little technical so a, a mass transfer Great. coefficient is a parameter where you lump all the things that you don't know uh, into one parameter uh, and you figure it out experimentally and so in the discipline of mass transfer like there's there's complicated but well-known analytical results for how for example a sphere, a perfect sphere uh, will undergo mass transfer and allow uh, something to move out into solution. You know, as a function of something called the Reynolds number, which can measure the convective contribution. Coffee is not a perfect sphere, um, and it's rarely under well-characterized fluid flow conditions you basically it's very difficult to measure. So what you do okay. is instead, and this is not just for coffee, it's for like a lot of different disciplines, if you basically you'll do some experiments, correlate the observed flux so that's how quickly the stuff moves out of the solid phase into the liquid phase. Um, okay. you measure that and then you correlate it in terms of the concentration difference and then you fit it with uh, what's known as this mass transfer coefficient. and so, Typically everything that you don't know about the diffusive flux, the convective flux, the temperature dependence, all that stuff is uh, subsumed within uh, K as the mass transfer coefficient traditionally, Um, and you stick it in there. So basically what that means in practice is that if you're doing uh, experiments under similar conditions where K was measured before... Then you can use that k again. So it's a it's an empirical coefficient.
0: And th- I guess this has nothing to do with time travel. So like if we stored the flux in some kind of capacitor, yeah. so, this is not. So you know,
1: I I use that joke in my lecture uh, for for <laughs> um, I'll I'll put up a picture of uh, you know the Back to the Future and the flux capacitor when I'm when I'm okay. when I'm introducing yeah. this concept of flux and whenever I show it to older audiences, you know, <laughs> and by that I mean like older than thirty or so, you know, uh, typically everybody starts laughing as soon as they see it because they get the joke right away. When I show it to eighteen year olds. Like they just have a blank look on their face; they have no idea what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> so somehow, back oh, no. to the, Back to the
1: Future is not required uh, viewing. <laughs> or, yeah, uh, I
0: guess not. Yeah. yeah.
1: Since we mentioned, it, I got to finish. The, I mean, flux capacitors—that's just a made-up. They put it in the movie because it sounded scientifical. I guess <laughs> it does, there's no meaning for that flux. I like it. Flux actually means the number of moles per unit area per unit time. That, that's the way that a, okay. a chemical engineer uses it.
0: Okay, we won't mess that one up next time. Okay. We won't. We won't get it mixed up with time travel. We're going to jump into a little bit of a conversation about data and the the role it plays in research. What are some of the key components of a successful scientific discovery in your opinion?
1: The very first thing uh, that any experiment, and it's not for coffee specifically, but any experiment is that it has to be reproducible and you have to have quantitative measures of the reproducibility and the statistical significance. And so I think in terms of the coffee industry, I think a lot of people, you know, make decisions about how good coffee is based on one or two or three coffee cuppers, you know, tasting the coffee, and that—that's you know, when you're running a business and you're on time pressure and all that, that's you no, know, that's an effective way of doing things. If you're trying to answer rigorous questions, though, that's you know, sample size of n equals three uh, is not very uh, re- reliable. When we did the consumer testing. you know, I mentioned these two cohorts, the sweet lovers and the extremophiles. We had something like 120 different people finished all the tasting over three different weekends. We ended up serving about, I think it was like 3,400 individual samples of coffee over the three Mm -hmm. weekends. And so a huge, huge sample size to build up enough statistics to have some confidence in our interpretation and our conclusions. I think to answer your question, yeah, I mean, like uh, you need to be able to replicate results and have some statistical significance in them. And then that's a big part of what we teach our students, you know, how to design an experiment and then how to analyze the data. But that's only half of the battle. Like The other part is then how do we communicate those? And so a large part of like Mm -hmm. graduate work uh, is uh, learning how to communicate uh, via both oral presentations and more importantly, via, you know, uh, peer-reviewed scientific publications and how to write those results up, where the peer reviewers will definitely ask detailed questions about your p-values and things like that for the statistical significance of your results.
0: And so it sounds like uh, statistics plays a major role in the confidence of the results. I mean, I say just loosely, but there's this experimentation portion You're collecting all this data. But at at the end of the day, there's a lot of statistics going into the research, right?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So my colleague, Jean-Xavier Gnard, uh, you know, he teaches a a certificate um, that's available to anybody, um, you know, coffee industry professionals or whoever, Hmm. about about sensory and consumer science. Um, And I think a lot of people kind of have the impression like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to learn how to taste things better. You know, I'll be, you know, become more sensitive. And then they're kind of surprised to discover that actually it's really, there's lots and lots of applied statistics. It's much more about how you analyze consumer and sensory data than it is about, you know, learning how to be a better taster. So the, yeah, absolutely. Like uh, what we're just in general, in terms of science uh, you know, science specifically disclaims arguments from authority, you know, like I don't want anybody to, you know, uh, I don't. I don't want anybody to believe our results because I stand up and say I'm the director of the coffee center. Uh, therefore, this is yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, the way we communicate things is by like saying, "Here is our data. Look, here's what we did. Here are the data. Here's our sample size. Here's our 95 percent confidence interval. This is what the data says. This is the way we're interpreting it. That's that's the way hmm. that science moves forward, and that's the perspective that we're bringing to coffee.
0: Very cool. What tools would you recommend? for our listeners at home to use to conduct their own experiments at home. So we talked a little bit about some TDS devices, but what else would you suggest?
1: So that's a great question. We actually struggled with this in the spring because, you know, COVID shut the university down. Our class typically has like 500 students per quarter, but we have a nice lab uh, here on campus and everybody goes in, they they roast and do these benchtop experiments. We had to figure out, you know, uh, on the drop of a dime, how to, replicate that experience for students who are stuck at home using their own kitchen. And so we're mm-hmm. actually working on uh, revising our, uh, our textbook, our lab manual, to have more of these home options. We were very motivated to minimize the amount of infrastructure they had to buy. So basically, they just had to have a coffee brewer, some way of heating water, some type of uh, brewing device. And the one thing that we insisted they get was uh, some way of weighing the mass. So like a food you know, kitchen scale, mm-hmm. preferably with 0.1 gram. A resolution, and with that, we were able to do a series of about eight different experiments where we, you know, introduce people who don't know anything about coffee to how coffee can taste. We introduce energy concepts. We introduce uh, the idea of a liquid retention ratio or, or absorption ratio. Cool. Uh, for yeah. illustrating the conservation of mass. So, I guess the the number one thing I'd say is like if you're not already using a scale to weigh the mass of the coffee you're brewing with, um, that'd be a really good investment. You can get a pretty good scale for twenty bucks, and, and you'll like once you start. You know, measuring things by mass rather than by you know tablespoons of volume, you'll start. You'll be the <laughs> step one on a, a more quantitative journey.
0: What kinds of experiments would you recommend for us at home? Say we end up, we go out, we buy that twenty dollars scale, and we're ready to do some experiments.
1: Well, so it depends if you're interested in like kind of learning about how the way an engineer would approach it, which is what my class is about. A pretty, I think, fun and interesting experiment is just systematically using the same amount of water, but varying the amount of coffee grounds. So let's say you use 300 grams of water and then you do a bunch of brews where every time you do 300 grams of water, but the first time you do 10 grams of coffee grounds, the next time 20 grams, the next time 30 grams. And each time what you do is then you just weigh, after you're done brewing, how much coffee did I actually get to drink? In other words, what was the mass of the brewed coffee? And Mm -hmm. if you you go and then, and this is the data analysis part, if you then take the mass of the brew that you got and plot that, make a scatter plot. So on the vertical axis, the mass of the brew that you got and on the horizontal axis is how much coffee grounds did I use? What you will find uh, if you do this carefully is uh, you'll find a negative correlation. So in other words, the more coffee grounds you add, the less coffee you get to drink. And so mm. a, a lot of people, at least a lot of students I talk to find that slightly counterintuitive at first. But it's really a nice illustration of the principle of conservation of mass because mm-hmm. what happens when you brew coffee is that not all the water goes through. You have some water gets left behind inside the coffee grounds, right? So you have right. uh, this absorbed coffee that you know, goes in the coffee grounds by capillary inhibition and whatnot. And so when you increase the mass of the coffee grounds, you also necessarily increase the mass of water left behind. And so you get this negative mm-hmm. correlation. And then if you want to take it even a step further in terms of data analysis, if you then do a linear regression, in other words, if you yeah. fit a line through those data points, the value of the slope, the slope of that line is mm-hmm. what we call the absorption ratio. Other people call the liquid retention ratio. And usually it's around two. So in other words, <laughs> uh, you lose, wow. you lose two grams of, or you lose two grams of water for every gram of coffee grounds that you put in. And so I Dang. I, I I tell people in the coffee industry, they like, you know, uh, that this, and if you look at the book, there's like a nice little equation that captures this. I said that like, basically this equation governs your profit margin on your drip brew coffee. Yeah. And if, if people are zoning out during the equations, then all of a sudden that they start paying attention uh, when they, when they do that.
0: <laughs> you say the big P word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. We're, um, I encourage our listeners to try this out. Maybe we can even do a collaboration brew, uh, with podcast listeners and and figure something out. That'd be super cool. Um, yeah. Now, I want to ask you, what are you working on? Like, What can you talk about? I know there's some stuff sort of under or, or behind the curtain, things you can't talk about yet, but what are things you can talk about and how can our listeners be a, a part of that conversation?
1: Sure. I mean, so uh, some of our work has already come out. So our first paper on the coffee burn control chart is was published in the Journal of Food Science. I think it got slowed down a little bit by the COVID outbreak, but I think it's finally out as of last month. Um, And so you can go uh, download that. Um, We have a couple papers in peer review right now. uh, What I was talking about before, the temperature, water temperature effect, and also on the consumer uh, cohorts, you know, the extremophiles and the sweet lovers, Uh, that's they're both undergoing peer review right now. We had an earlier paper on monosaccharides. We did some chemical measurements of how much sugar is present in coffee. Yeah. Oh, that's you know that's mm-hmm. a good uh, thing. I can also going back to one of your earlier questions. What was most surprising? Um, yeah. One one thing that we found there's a lot of uh, you know on the web there's a lot of information about how the different sugars present in coffee cause you know naturally present in black coffee uh, cause the, the sweetness in coffee. What we found was that there at least in the black coffee that we uh, analyzed there were no uh, perceptible Sugars present at all. Um, and so, yeah,
0: that is nuts. Yeah, yeah. So
1: we measured very carefully uh, 18 different uh, monosaccharides present in coffee. Um, and we got, you know, quantitative, you know, using mass spec quantitative values for all of them. And none of them, uh, either by themselves or in combination with others, none of them were above the kind of established sensory perception thresholds for coffee. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but at the same time, the coffee had perceptible sweetness. And so we uh, basically showed there that like there's it's really not the sugar is present; it's really yeah. other molecules that your mind associates with sweetness, kind of triggering a perception of sweetness, even though there's not sugar. Yeah,
0: like a sugary yeah. mirage or like a sugar phantom. Uh, yeah, it's, it's I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if
1: you like, if you bite into a potato while we'll blindfolded and, and hold an apple, you know, under your uh, nose, like the potato, what? the potato will taste yeah. sweeter just because you're getting that conflicting signal. From the kind of apple aroma, which your mind associates with sweetness. So, anyways, oh, that's, that, that's that's especially okay. in terms of other things coming up. I have uh, we have a really really exciting uh, set of research that we're doing right now on cold brew. So, everything I, oh, everything so. I was talking about was like about you know hot drip brew. Uh, we we're very delighted to partner with the Special Coffee Association, uh, the Coffee Science Foundation, uh, and with underwriting very generous underwriting from uh, Totti, um, which you know manufactures mm. cold brew equipment. And so, we have a couple uh, grad students right now that we're supporting on that uh, grant right now, and they're diving deep into. Extraction dynamics and sensory uh, perceptions uh, of cold brew coffee.
0: Yeah, that that'll be a lot of fun. We'll keep an eye out on that and make sure we get some links that'll be appropriate to get people over to where they can pay attention, get not- notifications and signals. Yeah, that. I
1: think well, one thing, Jesse, I, I should emphasize for your listeners: is that, like the whole point yeah. of the Coffee Center is we're not doing proprietary research. Everything we do, uh, our goal is to publish it in both peer-reviewed, you know, scientific. Uh, publications, mm-hmm. um, you yep. know, for other scientists around the world, and also to partner with, like for example, the SCA to disseminate in kind of uh, plain English, you know, what the import of those results are. Awesome. And so yep. everything we're going out. The the only thing that we hesitate to do is that, like when we have work that is not quite out the door yet. We want to make sure that uh, our grad students who are putting all their work and effort into it, you know, get credit for it. So that's why we uh, don't put out preprints yep. and things like that.
0: No, it's cool. Very cool. What is the main takeaway you want our listeners to have? from our conversation today?
1: I think the main take-home message should be that, uh, you know, coffee science is really complicated. We are just getting started at the UC Davis Coffee Center to do, I think, a lot of really fascinating and super important research about coffee to help improve uh, coffee, not just for consumers, you know, uh, in places like the United States, but to really improve quality and therefore improve demand for coffee to Mm -hmm. help people all around the world.
0: Well, this episode certainly changed some of the ways I think about brewing at home and how I might get creative with reducing temperature and increasing other variables since we now better understand the role of temperature in brewing. We have one more episode in the Coffee Science series that you're not going to want to miss. We talk with a certain YouTube coffee personality about the role of coffee influencers in the world of coffee science. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, and until next time, happy brewing.